If you've joined us this morning and you're without a Bible, there's some men coming up the aisle right now and they have one for you. Just wave and get their attention and they'll get it uh, Bible to you and probably got it already marked to Daniel chapter 2 for you. And we want everybody not only to hear the Word of God but to read along, want that the Word to come in through every gate that is possible into our hearts and minds and our spirits. Daniel chapter 2. I feel like today, while we're turning there, um, I mean, it's got to be a Bible study for sure, but I, I, didn't, I thought it was interesting the detour is going to have a briefing. This is more like a briefing today. You'll see as we get into the passage. Daniel chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, the, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. So we have a prophet by the name of Daniel who is uh, wanting to speak to a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king over the Babylonian empire at the time. And then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. And the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers, cannot they cannot declare that to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days." Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while you were lying on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secret has made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have any more wisdom than uh, anyone living. But for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your hearts. You, O king, were watching, and behold a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. And this image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and clay and you watched while a stone was cut without hands which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces and then the iron the clay the bronze the silver the gold were crushed together became like chaff from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found and the stone which struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth this is the dream Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you, 
shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. And whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seeds of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings of God, of heaven, uh, in in the days of these kings, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. And inasmuch as you saw that the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke the pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to you, to the king, what will come to pass After this, the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for every single bit of it and all that it is intended to do in our minds, in our hearts, in our soul, and in our strength. And we've come for a work of your Holy Spirit today, Lord, also in the study of your word And that you would take all of your thoughts, all of your intents behind this passage. And that you would wonderfully and deeply, Lord, plant those things and make them a reality in each one of our lives. Take the truths off of the page and plant them. Give them an eternal, permanent place in each one of our lives. We want to be dominated by your word, Lord. We need to be dominated by your word. We ask for that work of your Holy Spirit this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. On Sunday morning, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and we have come to Matthew's Gospel, chapters 24 and 25, and Those passages are known as the Olivet Discourse because Jesus taught his disciples on the Mount of Olives concerning, you know, providing them with what is obviously very invaluable insight into what would be the characteristics of human history at the very end of the age. And before we get into those passages, I wanted to spend two or three weeks outside of them looking at some other passages that speak of what the Bible says about the last days or the end of human history so that we can better understand what it is that Jesus uh, said in the Olivet uh, Discourse. Now, last time we studied the prophet Ezekiel and how he declared and gave to us the basically the layout of the geopolitical situation in the Middle East in the last days. And today I want to kind of shift gears. We want to stay in this whole vein of uh, geopolitical, but we want to move from the Middle East to what does the Bible say uh, about 
uh, Europe specifically in the last days. And we're going to deal with this subject principally from Daniel chapter 2, but we'll be putting together other uh, passages that apply from elsewhere in the Bible. It's very important for us to understand the context of this revelation or this dream that God gave to this great king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 2, a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, he had a dream that came to him. And it was a dream that he recognized to be a revelation from God. And at that time, 604 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar was the head of uh, the greatest world-ruling empire of, of that day, an empire known as the Babylonian Empire. He was far and away the most powerful and the most wealthy man in the world at that time. In terms of power, you want to try on power um, that makes any power that we have apart from God uh, dwarf by comparison. When Nebuchadnezzar opened his mouth and he spoke... What he spoke or what he commanded became law in the Babylonian Empire. That's power. There is nothing in all of the world that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to have of a material variety that he did not already have, and not only have, but have it in spades. He had everything you could want in terms of power and in terms of material things. Wealthy and powerful beyond imagination, beyond description. And yet one night as he lay in his bed attempting to go to sleep, he began to think about, verse 29, what would come to pass after this. And he's doubtless wondering, what is going to happen to the Babylonian Empire after I'm dead and gone? And this dream that he has, it comes from God, and this dream that he receives from the Lord is an answer to that question. What is going to come to pass after this. But what the Lord does in answering Nebuchadnezzar's question is that he proceeds to reveal to Nebuchadnezzar and to us not only what was going to happen in human history following Nebuchadnezzar's death or even following the end of the Babylonian Empire, but God proceeds to give to Nebuchadnezzar a a prophecy or history in advance to look all the way down the corridor of time and see all of human history and what's going to happen all the way till the time of Jesus' second coming when he comes again and brings an end to man's rule on the earth and an end to uh, the Gentile world power. Well, the problem that Nebuchadnezzar faced when the Lord gave him this dream is that he recognized that the dream was from God. There was no question uh, about that. His problem was he couldn't figure it out. He couldn't make heads or tails of it. So here's this answer to his prayer. He's received it. He knows it's come from God, but he can't figure it out to save his life. What in the world God is communicating to him through this particular dream? So he calls on all of his magicians and all of his sorcerers and all of his wise men and his counselors, calls them all together, and he said, I've had this dream, and I have a sense that it comes from God here, and and I want you to give me the interpretation of the dream. They said, no problem. Tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. Well, Nebuchadnezzar 
You don't become the king of a world-ruling empire and you're dumb. He didn't just come up out of the pumpkin patch. It's a little October, fall kind of illustration for you. He's a sharp guy. And he looks at his counselors and he thinks to himself, if I tell them the dream, then they can come up with any old kind of interpretation and how can I know that they, they've given me something, the true interpretation of the dream or they've made something up. So he said, no, I'm not going to do that for you. You tell me the dream, and then I'll know I can trust your interpretation. Oh, they began to squawk and complain. Nobody's ever asked of his counselors or of his magicians or his sorcerers or these kinds of his wise men, something like that. Everybody gives us something to work with. Only the gods can answer the question that you're asking and you're demanding of us. We're mere human beings. We can't supply that. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is not a man for excuses. Being the most powerful man in the world can make you a little impatient, I think, with excuses. The rest of us, we have to put up with it. So he says, listen, I don't want any of your excuses. He said, if you don't give me the dream and the interpretation of the dream, I'm going to take you and your family and hack you in little pieces. What about hacking you in little pieces, don't you understand? They understand exactly what he was saying. And then I'm going to take your, hill, your homes and I'm going to make them a refuse dump, a dunghill, after, after we're done with you. And so they immediately recognized they were in difficulty and they began to squawk some more. And he gave the decree to start to kill these wise men. They just got nothing but excuses. Well, the problem in all of this is Daniel... And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are a part of these counselors, this group of people. So they start to kill these people. Daniel wasn't in the meeting, and he comes to the guy that's been dispatched to do all the killing. He says, what in the world's going on here? He's informed of it, and he said, let me go before the king. And he's granted an audience with the king, and he said, would you give us some time to learn from God what the dream was, and what the interpretation of it is. And Nebuchadnezzar gave him permission to do that. And Daniel and his friends uh, sought the Lord in, immediately in prayer on the issue. While in prayer, the Lord revealed to Daniel both the dream and its uh, meaning. Daniel immediately uh, got an audience with the king in order to stop the killing of, of the wise men. And he proceeded then to announce to Nebuchadnezzar both his dream and its meaning. Nebuchadnezzar, here's the dream you had. You saw an image. It was just, even for all the beauty you've seen, all the awe that you've seen, the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the wonders of the ancient world, for all that has been put before your eyes, this image that you saw, even you looked at it and said, this is something that's absolutely splendid, beautiful. And the image itself had a head of gold. And it had a chest and arms of silver. It had a waist and it had thighs of, of uh, uh, bronze. And then it had legs of iron and it had feet then of iron and of clay. And while you were watching the beauty of, and the majesticness of this image, you saw a stone that's supernatural in its origin. It doesn't have its origin in man, and it was cut out of a mountain. And it hit that image, not in the head, not in the chest, not in the thighs, not in the legs, but it hit that image in the feet. 
And when it hit that image in the feet, the entirety of it collapsed in gold mixed with silver and silver mixed with bronze and with iron and clay and all of it became a great heap. And then a wind came up and blew all of it away in the same way that the chaff of the wheat is blown away by a winter or a summer uh, breeze. Nebuchadnezzar, there's your dream. So if you put yourself in Nebuchadnezzar's place, you think, if, if I saw that dream, I wouldn't know how to make heads or tails of it. And so he was puzzled by it, anxious to know the meaning. And then Daniel revealed to Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation or the meaning of the dream. He said, Nebuchadnezzar, you and Babylon, you are the head of gold. And gold has the the greatest value of all, and so Nebuchadnezzar was greatest in terms of power. Again, anything he wanted to speak, he could speak it right into law. I mean, absolute power. There was no uh, balance of power related to him. It all centered on him. There were no parliaments. There were no, uh, you know, councils. There were no cabinets that he had to answer to. There was no House of Representatives. There was no Senate as good as they are for accountability. But anyway, that's another problem we have. But he had nothing that he had to answer to. He woke up, whatever he wanted to do, that's what he did in, in, in terms of, of power. But the Babylonian kingdom, as great as it was, would not outlast man's history. It would give way to another. A second kingdom would follow, symbolized by silver arms and by a silver chest on the image. And just as silver is inferior to gold, so too in terms of pure power, the second kingdom would be inferior to the kingdom of Babylon. And we know that the kingdom that followed the Babylonian Empire was the Medo-Persian Empire. And because it was the uniting of two groups of people, uh, it, it, it... its government was different than the pure power of the Babylonian uh, Empire. And so the two arms of the image, speaking of the Medes and the Persians, joined by uh, Cyrus to defeat Babylon. And then Daniel speaks of a third world-ruling empire. And we know from history that the world-ruling empire that followed the Medo-Persian Empire was the Grecian Empire. And it is symbolized by the bronze Uh, Alexander the Great was the head of that great empire and we're told by historians that it's reputed that even while in his 20s after he had conquered the known world and now was just out conquering exotic places for his own amusement and keeping himself occupied that he wept that there was no more world to conquer. And the Grecian army was interesting that the whole metal of bronze would characterize them. The Greek soldiers wore bronze armor, brass helmets, breastplates, shields, and swords. And then Daniel speaks in verse 40 of a fourth world-ruling empire that would follow the Grecian Empire, and it would be characterized by legs of iron. And so it would be an empire that just as iron, you know, breaks silver, it breaks gold, it breaks anything that you want to crush uh, with it, uh, so too this empire would come in and just shatter and crush everything in its path. And we know that the world-ruling empire that followed the Grecian Empire was the Roman Empire, ruled for 
almost a, a thousand years. And it ruled by force. You've heard of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It goes like this. You mess with me, I break your face. Kind of like that. And nobody really complained but because it brought stability, it brought wealth to the world. But you didn't rise up against the Roman government. They knew how to crush people and keep them in, in line. And so that was the, the fourth world ruling empire. And Daniel then, in verses 41 to 43, Daniel then describes a fifth world ruling empire characterized by feet and toes made up partly of clay and partly of iron. Now this is of enormous interest to us because since the breakup of the Roman Empire, after almost a thousand year uh, reign, the world has not had a world ruling empire since. Uh, communism has tried it, uh, Mao tried it, Hitler has tried it. Lots of people have tried it down through history and nobody's been successful yet. So what that tells us is that this part of the vision that's described here is yet future. And it will constitute the final chapter in man's history because it is the world ruling empire that takes us to the latter days at the time of Jesus' second coming when the Lord will return, will establish His uh, kingdom in the world, bring an end to man's kingdom and man's rebellion against God. Now, notice what's revealed to us about the characteristics of this final kingdom at the end of the age and see if we can uh, recognize it as anything that's present on uh, the world scene. The ten toes represents ten kings or ten leaders of ten uh, nations who will unite together into one kingdom. And we go into Daniel chapter 7. We don't have time to go there, but you can on your own. Daniel chapter 7. We can go into Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 17, which uses different imagery, but drives home the same point. That ten kings, ten national leaders are going to unite together and they're going to give their power and authority to someone who is known as the beast, and the beast refers to the Antichrist. You notice in verse 41 that the feet have iron in them, indicating that this final world-ruling empire has its roots in the old Roman Empire, which was characterized by the iron. So it will emerge from the ruins of the Old Roman Empire, and the Old Roman Empire, of course, was centered in Europe. And that's why this final empire is often referred to as a revived Roman Empire. Notice the feet and the toes, that they are a mixture of iron and clay. So some of the toes, some of the ten nations that make up this union are going to be like iron. They're going to be strong. Some of the nations that make up this confederation are going to be like clay. They're going to be comparatively uh, weaker. In addition, just as the toes are united together by a human foot, but they maintain their individual identity, and they do, if you have grandchildren, this little piggy went to market, this little piggy said, those toes all have an individual identity, though they are united by being connected to the foot. So here they are, they're united together, 
but somehow they maintain their individual uh, identity in spite of the alliance. The alliance takes that into consideration. So we look around the world today geopolitically. We ask ourselves, can we find a confederation of nations that exists in the area of the old Roman Empire, some of which are strong, some of which are weak, which has also found a way of uniting people together in such a way that it, it does not require that these nations lose their individual heritage, national heritage, national identity, their borders, and which also is capable of dominating the world if it had just the right leader. And the answer to that question, of course, is yes. And the uh, answer to the yes is it's all found in what we see on the world scene today known as the European uh, Union, which has come into existence very, very recently in human history within the lifetimes of many of us uh, in this room. You think about the likelihood of Europe ever uniting together in this way and becoming something that could dominate the world. I mean, even 50 years, I don't know what Christians did or people did, well, they looked in faith on these passages. Europe took the world into two of the worst wars in human history, World War I and World War II. The idea that these nations would ever unite, what could unite them, what could bring them together, but that they would unite together and become one, I mean, that has seemed absolutely unlikely until very, very recent history, and yet here they are. The European Union is made up of 27 nations currently. Somehow it's going to reduce down to 10 by elimination or by consolidation of some of the nations together. I don't know how it's going to happen. I just know that the Bible says it, it is going to happen. Remember that it is the Antichrist who is going to bring them into world prominence during the tribulation period. He is the one that is going to uh, bring Europe from what it is into this kind of prominence in, in human history. Going to do it during the tribulation period, that seven-year period in which the Lord pours His wrath out on a Christ-rejecting world after He has removed His church from the world prior to that. Because the Bible says that we're not appointed unto wrath as Christians. It's interesting, in the book of Revelation, when Jesus breaks the seals, the seven seals that are on the scroll um, that constitutes the title deed to planet Earth, that first seal that he breaks is the revelation of the Antichrist. And even though he brings peace to the world for three and a half years, he still is part of the wrath of God. We need to be removed as the church before the revelation of the Antichrist. And so the, the point that I'm making is that we don't need to see Europe become all of this before the rapture or before the coming of the Antichrist because he's going to be the one that makes Europe uh, all of this to the nth degree or some variation of the European Union. But we should notice trends in that direction that reveals that the end of the age is near and thus the return of Christ is near. And the things that we should notice, the trends, trends like the capacity for Europe to dominate the world economically and then militarily, 
if only they had the right leader, to watch the growth in strength and influence of the European Union. Now, I'm not saying that you should, if you're a currency trader, take and get rid of all of your U.S. dollars and go put them in euros. Or to take all of your stocks out of American companies and put them in European uh, stocks. Again, remember, Europe is going to be brought to this place uh, of, of prominence by the Antichrist. So if you're a Christian here today and you move it all over there, you're going to get great dividends during the tribulation period. You'll have money like crazy. You won't care about it at that point. You'll be, asked, you'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb in the presence of the Lord having another combination pizza with Pepsi or whatever is being served. That happens to be my favorite food. Nice bowl of pasta to chase it is always very nice too. But you're not going to care about it. But the point is, is, that, is, is that we're talking about what it's going to become, but we see the trends of it moving dramatically in that direction before our our very uh, eyes. So initially, the Antichrist's main focus is going to be to turn this confederation of nations into an economic powerhouse. He's going to accomplish that beyond anyone's wildest dreams for three and a half uh, years. Then he'll uh, take over the whole kit and caboodle and then attempt to dominate the whole world militarily. Now, a couple of things are needed for Europe to rise and become the world superpower, and namely that uh, two things in particular, and that is the diminishing of influence and power of the world's current two current superpowers, namely Russia and the United States. Now, last time when we studied Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 and studied the attempted and very unsuccessful future invasion of Russia, attempted uh, of Israel, attempted annihilation of Israel by Russia and uh, Islamic uh, uh, allies, that as they uh, attempt to, to wipe out the Jews, it's going to result in a virtual annihilation of their armed forces and that God is not only going to wipe out the invading forces, but that he will then send fire into the coastlands, that into, is into the nations that then dispatch those armies. And so what you have, if that battle occurs right before the, trib, the, the rapture or right after the rapture, you have uh, both Russia and the Islamic world knocked down about four notches. They will be licking their wounds for a long time. They have become very much focused on their uh, little world and they will have been humbled uh, before the whole world theater. Concerning the United States, one of the things that uh, many of you noticed when we studied Ezekiel 38 and 39 was the absence of the mention of the United States in, uh, in, in that particular prophecy. And several of you caught me at the back door and said, are we mentioned anywhere in the Scriptures? Nowhere that I can see. Or, or no, that's a little hard for us as Americans. A little, you know, what do you mean we're not in there? Somebody needs to write something then, I think. We could have. We're fairly, have a fairly high sense of our own self-importance. But there isn't any mention of the United States in, in the biblical end times prophecy. And I don't know exactly the reason why, 
But it appears that something happens to the United States that causes it to remain on the sidelines when Israel is invaded and uh, further causes it to decline as the world's great superpower in the last days to then give way for this uh, uh, world-ruling empire out of uh, Europe. Now, here we go into a little bit of uh, sanctified uh, speculation, which means this and uh, $16 will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. So it's really, you know, but it is interesting to think about here. The possibilities of how we could we could be diminished as the world's great superpower. Well, it could happen. All of this could take place at a time where the United States is just war-weary. We just look and we say, that's it. That's it. We're not sending any more of our own boys and girls out there. The world's got to step up. We're not going to be policemen to the whole world, and we're not going to do it on our dime. Just not going to do it. And so they look at this thing, it comes up, and, and the attitude of the United States is, no, we are going isolationist, we don't want to enter into that fray. Could be a possibility. Additionally, all we have to do, I think, to become a second-rate nation, it doesn't mean that we're going to go into third-world poverty or something like that, but a second-rate nation is to uh, continue our current trends in government. A second stimulus would accomplish it, I think. How many people do you have to have on the news, the experts in these areas, who are alarmed and saying at our current rate, even without a second stimulus, if things do not get turned around, we are talking about a permanent change in the standard of living in the United States of America. It's real. And you look, as I mentioned last week, at our government leaders spending like drunken sailors with apologies to drunken sailors. How in the world? Do you know how hard it is to take the wealth of this country and bankrupt it as thoroughly as it's been bankrupted? You couldn't take 30 certifiable idiots... I'm getting carried away here, but I, I choose my words carefully. Put them in a room, have them come up with a national policy and an economic policy that would land us in the kind of hot water that we're in for the last 20 to 30 years. What we're witnessing is absolutely, I'm convinced, supernatural. Nothing makes rhyme or reason to a thinking person. Why would a country with this power and this wealth sell its sovereignty by the day in the form of its currency to its enemies if it has any hope of maintaining its posture and its position as the world ruling kind of dominant influence in the world? Nothing makes sense. I just look at it and I say, is there some gigantic demon that just the demon of covetousness among the people, and then the demon of just spending money like crazy that is over the United States and hovers over Washington to put us in the place that we're in. In other words, we don't even have to do any more damage. We just have to ride out our current policies to end up a second-rate nation, upper tier to be sure. 
but on a par with everything else in the world and to make room economically for Europe to move forward under the right leadership in, into uh, that position of, of leading uh, the, the world and becoming that final world-ruling empire. There's another option that's a, a little more attractive uh, to me. That's the rapture option, and that is... Uh, if the rapture occurs and God's people are removed from the earth as Jesus comes back for us, I mean, between Russia talking about world powers and Europe becoming a world power uh, in that way, between Russia and the United States and Europe, certainly the country that will be the greatest impacted uh, numerically and, and, and as a result uh, in terms of expertise and, and all will be the United States of America. We have far more Christians uh, proportionally in the United States. And unlike uh, maybe Russia, in terms of the United States, we have Christians who are in very high levels of government, very high levels of the military, very high levels all across the board within our society. At the time of the rapture and in that loss of the battle by Russia, Russia could be licking their wounds. We could be put in a condition of chaos, become isolationist as a result of it, and then it opens up the entire scenario for uh, Israel or for uh, Europe then to come in and fill that power vacuum allowing the Antichrist to lead Europe into world dominance. Everything is currently in place for that. That could happen this afternoon. Again, unique in human history, what we see before us here uh, today as we would read the news and watch the news uh, reports. God might do it some other way. I'm not saying he'll do it that way. But the main thing to watch for is the potential for the decline of the United States as the world's great economic power and the potential of Europe to rise up and take our place given the right leader. Well, European Union, uh, its GDP accounts for over 22% of the world's total economic output. That makes it the largest economy, single economy in the world, largest, the second largest trade bloc economy in the world. It's the largest exporter, the largest importer of goods and services. This is now pre-Antichrist, greatest, biggest trading partner to several large con uh, countries such as India and China. has a population of 498 million, which dwarfs our uh, population. Its currency, the euro, which was like a joke when it came out just about 11 years ago. Euro was worth about 60 cents to a, a U.S. dollar. And what in the world is Europe doing coming up with a currency? and, and uh, what are they thinking and all and if any of you have tried to travel to Europe or buy something European the last few years you know the Europe, euro is no longer weak against the dollar it costs a fortune to go over there buy anything over there the euro is very very strong much stronger than the dollar doesn't mean that Europe doesn't have problems Again, I'm not saying to invest in it right now or anything like that, and it doesn't mean it's going to, not going to have some highs and lows. It's going to have instability that makes it willing to turn its sovereignty over to this, this single man's power, the, the Antichrist. But the euro has become strong, much stronger than it's ever been before, despite fluctuations. And look what's happened to the U.S. dollar. I, I, don't, I can't speak for history, but I just about cannot pick up 
a, a newspaper or watch a telecast certainly cannot go online and go to the web, the news sites that I go to, except that we're hearing almost on a weekly basis, a daily basis, if you want to see it go far enough all, the clamor of the world to move away from the U.S. dollar as the international currency of the world. And the reason that they're doing that is they look at the financial trouble that we're in and they say, they can have their own problems, we don't want to sink with them. We don't want to be that affected by their currency. We don't want to be that affected economically by the United States of America. So now there is a talk of developing a completely different international currency by which the dollar would go by the wayside or have the international currency be a combination of the Japanese yen, the euro, and the U.S. dollars, so it's not so weighted toward the U.S. Uh, dollar. So you, what you see here in Europe, and you see it in Asia, and, and it all fits in line with the Scriptures, is the rest of the world looks at the United States as a result of this economic meltdown, which they played a part in, but we played a very big part in, but they looked at the United States as a result of this economic meltdown and the effect that it has had upon us. And they basically have turned the corner in their minds and they're ready to move forward in a world economy that is not dominated by the United States. And you go to European newspapers, go to Asian newspapers, and you can see it openly spoken of that we need to have a world economy where all the roads don't run through and are dependent on the United States of America. In other words, they are ready to bypass us the moment that they can see a weakness and the ability to do that. It's ruthless out there. People are not loyal today. And we see all of it in place in the world that we live in. They have their own flag. They have their own parliament. They have their own courts. They have their own bank. For the past ten years, they've had their own military. They've been hesitant to use it. Not talking about the military of Germany or France or Britain. They have their own EU military. And they've been hesitant to use it. I don't see a problem with that. The Antichrist won't share their hesitancy. And so, for our purposes this morning, as you watch the news each day, in terms of this prophecy and looking for the Lord's soon return, Watch for signs of the decline of the United States as the world's single great superpower. And then the continued rise of Europe. One of the things that's fascinating for me to watch as we look at all of this and the Antichrist coming on the scene and he'll be, he, he's going to be possessed by the devil himself. Not a demon. The devil of himself. You think you've seen charismatic politicians? You haven't seen a charismatic politician till you see the Antichrist come on the scene. He is going to be supernaturally something on the dark side. But he's going to be amazing and able to seduce the world and a section of the world that is smarter than God and not following God, by and large, in terms of a continent. And he is just, he's going to seduce them very, very easily. One of the things that's fascinating to watch right now is the concentration of power. And that's what I'd like you to watch as you watch the news. Some of you are dead. You said, when is this man going to stop? I will stop in time for you to go to Costco and get those freebies in the aisle. They won't run out. But I'm on a roll here and I want to say these things on my heart. So, the concentration of power is amazing. 
How power is being concentrated in this world until it is in the hands of a very relatively few people in the world. And you look at how readily we have given up individual freedom and transferred it to government in the last ten years. And I don't say that we've done it deliberately or that we could have even done something different than that. I just say that it's just lining up with God's Word. He knew what would happen. Think about 9-11. Think about the freedoms, the individual personal freedoms that we were willing to give up, not just at the airport, but all kinds of places to empower our government to be able to find these people and keep us safe from another attack. Almost always, government is good to a point, almost always after that, government grows in power at the expense of individual power. And then what happens? We get some stability on that end. We're used to giving up power to the government when it's necessary. And then this economic tsunami comes down. Everybody's wondering, are we going to be starving out in the streets? Is there going to be soup lines? What do we got to do to get out of this? And then the willingness to turn over power to our government, our federal government, that we would have never been willing to do before. The ability to buy up and take over American companies, to get into the business of individual uh, uh, companies and people, and, and the, and the it, intrusion into personal freedoms. Now they're so emboldened, they want to tell me what to eat and what I can't, and am I going to have a soda and pay a tax on it? I mean, it's just crazy where this thing is going. But I mean, on the national, the international level, government is becoming by the day more powerful, not just in the United States, but around the world. In the United States, we've got local government. Local government is the most responsive to its citizens. Why? You meet these people in the store. They want to be on good terms with you. So you can talk to your city council member. You can talk with your school board member. Then you got state government. A little harder to get through to or have them take you seriously. Then you got a federal government. And I don't know who they're listening to these days. I don't, doesn't seem like my voice is very important to them at all. They're doing precisely what they want to do. So we look at that. The further that government moves away from people, moves away from accountability and that concentration of power. Europe is in a worse place than the United States. They've got their local government, they have their state governments, they have their national governments, but they also then have an EU government that is over them all. And the concentration of power at the head of that EU government, dominated by a very small group of people, very easy to turn immense power on a dime over to a single person. It's amazing what we are seeing before our very own eyes today. You think about, too, this, you know, they talk about the Antichrist in the Bible and how he's going to make everyone have the mark of the beast on the right hand or the forehead in order to buy or to sell and, and all of these kinds of things. And the technology is here. I won't bore you with all of that. They could do it tomorrow if they wanted to do that. So the technology is there to track individual human beings and give them an identification mark. It would solve a lot of problems, but ultimately it would be inaugurated by the Antichrist and he'll use it for evil. But think about where we are even today as you're watching this thing march toward its, its end. We, we have a credit card 
and uh, we're so maxed out and hoping for the rapture. I'm telling just kidding. We pay it every month. Somebody raised their hand. They got, I got a witness out of somebody on that. But at the end of the year, they send us a statement that it tells us everywhere we've dined. It tells us everywhere we got gas. It tells us everywhere we spent. Today, in the world that we live, by the time they can take your record of your cell phone, what you do with your credit card, when you're on that computer, when you're on this or doing this, and then all of the cameras that are all around watching, they can essentially put 90% of your life together. The world is very, very small. The whole thing is coming together technologically, economically, I mean, by the day before our very own eyes. Now, thankfully, I'm not going to send you out of the room and say, wasn't that terrific? I don't know why I feel so terrible, but I thought it was wonderful. This all does have a happy ending in verses 44 and 45, the arrival of a stone in human history. And the stone is none other than Jesus Christ at His second coming. He's referred to as the chief cornerstone many times. And that stone comes in, and when that stone comes back, Jesus comes back in His second coming. Again, He doesn't hit the image in the head or in the chest or the thighs or the legs. He comes back at the time of this final world-ruling empire and hits it right in its feet and then brings the end to man's government. Jesus at His second coming wipes out his adversaries at the Battle of Armageddon, establishes a thousand-year reign uh, in the world. That gives way to a, a new heaven and a new earth where he wonderfully reigns forever and ever. And as Christians, that will be our portion forever and ever. And the Lord's commentary regarding all of this is, verse 45, the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. You know what's amazing about this? When this vision or this dream was given to Nebuchadnezzar, it was all faith. All he could see was Babylon. He knew nothing about the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and all. To him it was, it, it was something to believe, believe by faith. We sit in a room here tonight where we look back on it in terms of human history and we see four-fifths of it by our eyes, by our sight, and only one-fifth of it by, by faith. And four-fifths of it having already been fulfilled, how likely or unlikely is it that God is not going to fulfill the final one? Of course He's going to fulfill the final chapter of, of human history. The dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. I got walking with the Lord back in 1980 and I've been a student of the Bible since and I've especially enjoyed the study of, of Bible prophecy. And the knowledge of Bible prophecy has been invaluable to me. And that's why I teach sermons like this. I don't know what I would do if I was not able to process life in this world that does not make sense to me on a social level, on an economic level, on a political level, on no level does it make any sense to me. I don't know what I would do for my sanity if I was not able to process it through the grid of God's prophecy and to be able, newscast by newscast, newspaper by newspaper, be able to literally, day by day, look at it and say, that's what the Bible says would be in place before, just before Jesus comes back to rapture the church. And it, we do not know 
how to process life if we don't know if we don't know prophecy if we don't understand these things then the tendency for us as Christians is going to be to get a terminal case of the ain't it awfuls to wring our hands stop serving the Lord join the militia or some kind of a you know get out into some kind of a place out there where there's a lot of barbed wire and all the ammunition but you can't buy ammunition as oh, another story anyway <laughs> so this would be the tendency if we did not we're not able to look at all of these things and not send us into some kind of craziness or anxiety but to look at it and have all of it remind us he's coming back the only hope for the world is not in man. It is not in man's government. The only hope for the future of the world is that Jesus is coming back to this world and the world is in exactly the place that he said it would be in prior to his second coming and prior to the rapture of the church. And it gives us comfort. I think it's interesting to notice here that the dream that the Lord gave to Nebuchadnezzar wasn't supremely for Nebuchadnezzar's sake, but for Daniel's sake. You notice in verses 46 and 47. For the sake of God's people all down through the ages. You look at Nebuchadnezzar's excitement in those two verses. He is, he, his excitement is not over the fact that God's going to bring an end to man's rebellion against him and that God's going to bring an end to man's self-government and establish his own kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar's excitement is over the fact that God knew his dream and gave him the interpretation of it. He's not even excited about the message of the interpretation. Daniel gets the dream. And it isn't that God knows the thoughts and the dreams and, and their meanings. It isn't even that God knows the future that excites Daniel. What excites and comforts Daniel here is that God has control over the future of man. And Daniel seems to understand this because his praise to God in verses 23, 20 through 23, he praised God for revealing the dream and its interpretation in verse 23, but only after he praised God for his sovereign control and authority over times and kings and kingdoms. What got Daniel through all of this is my God is in control no matter what things may look like outwardly. And that's what this prophecy is intended to encourage us in. It's not easy to live in a nation that is going to take steps backward in a road. We would be prone to become more anxious than the rest of the world. But to look at it to the degree that we may be a witness of it, and to look at it and have it fill our hearts, the fact that it means that Jesus is coming back soon, the shift of power is underway that the Bible speaks about. There is only one place of security on planet earth, and that is being in the middle of God's will. There is no other place of security. Now let me close with this. It will be my first closing and my final closing. I know people in this body, a couple of them in this body, they like to read, voracious readers. And so they, they like to read, and they like to read suspense novels. But they are of such a constitution, so nervous, so high-strung, 
that they will take a mystery novel and they have to read the final chapter of it to be able to read the rest of the novel. You say, that would ruin it for me. Not for them. They'd be a complete nervous wreck if they did not know how the story ends. And because they know how the story ends, they can then enjoy the journey through the book. Well, life is a lot bigger mystery than a mystery novel that we're in. And God gives us these prophecies so we know the end of the story, not just in our noggins, but they're a daily part of how we process life so that we can walk in peace through all the ups and downs and the corners that are turned and in all between there and the end of the book. The end of the book is this. Jesus comes back and he raptures his church into heaven prior to the great tribulation period. And then at the end of that seven year period, he returns to establish his kingdom. That's what all of these things tell us. Our redemption and our redeemer is drawing nigh. Let's stand together and we'll pray.